Let me tell you a story. Podcast number 42. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a truth how long it You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. It's springtime, and it would normally be time to put a spring in your step. But we've done that for you with the new Spring Step. No doubt you've used one of those old-fashioned, unsafe, bulky, two- or three-level steps tool ladders to reach a shelf way too high for your diminutive size. And you probably lost your balance and fell, causing personal pain in the hiring of of an ambulance chaser, not to mention what you had to pay the doctors and hospital, besides your health insurance. Well, no more of that. Get your spring step, the original spring-loaded stool that ejects, punts, heaves, and pitches you to that top shelf. You just place your feet on a step, wait two seconds, and listen for the rush of wind as you propel through the air. Then grab the item you want before you return trip to the floor. It's easier than saying, 911, order your spring step before the fall. Helmet and body armor sold separately, batteries not included. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We started a new feature last time we're calling Kid Chuckles. I know, not very original, but I think you'll enjoy hearing the funny things our kids said when they were small. Please feel free to send in your own humorous kid sayings to us um, at, what is it, a story at beckyliles.com. Today, I'll read some quotes from our daughter, Elisa. She was four, almost five years old, when I recorded these jewels. Elisa said that old buildings are the biggest because they've had more time to grow. And she noticed the frosting on the ground this morning, as she called it. One day she said, I like the way you cleaned out this drawer, Mom. It looks very nice. You did a good job. And she's still that uh, positive, encouraging person that she was when she was four. Let's see, here's another one. Elisa showed me a picture she had colored, and she said, It's so good that you just want to stare at it, huh? According to her, using glitter is salting her pictures. Elisa said Jesus could make himself smell like cherry pie. And when I didn't fix lunch as soon as she wanted, she said, It's too late for our hungriness. When her brother Toby said that his skin was blue, Elisa said, Listen to this. And she sang the song. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. She said, that doesn't say blue. Toby thought about it, and he decided the song should be changed to red and yellow, blue and white. And one more. I overheard Elisa singing, Jesus is a wonderful Savior. He's a great machine. Our friend Pam McCleary introduced us to Where I'm From Poetry. It's a fun way to take a look at our lives, past and present. Becky's going to read hers first. Where I'm From 
I'm from Uncle George, the school bus driver, and Helen, his cafeteria queen wife, who introduced Lawrence from the Wheatland Flats on the top side of Dickinson Hill to Carol down under in Goshen Hole. I'm from a Scotts Bluff, Nebraska hospital and the dairy where my father labored. I'm from a stay-at-home mom who once worked for S&H Green Stamps and who waited for my father when the Army sent him to Korea. I'm from Wyoming homesteaders, the Chisholms and the Careys, from windmills and water tanks, rattlesnakes and rabbits, gophers and grasshoppers. I'm from coyote howls, endless wind, and stubby cactus blooming in the springtime. I'm from earth so dry it cracked, and blizzards blanketing the countryside. I'm from frozen antelope carcasses and hawks circling the air, from the call of the meadowlark and secrets from the past in the shape of an arrowhead. I'm from trips to the outhouse down the hill and to the water pump the other direction, always on the lookout for snakes. I'm from grandpas in caskets and grandmas in baggy underwear, rolled stockings, sturdy black shoes, and hairnets. I'm from their smiles and their laughter, their love of family, Gunsmoke and Charles Blair on TV. I'm from the weeping willow in Grandma's front yard, but please don't climb it, from oven-baked chicken, homemade bread, and raisin cream pie. I'm from the sound of my mother giggling with her sisters as they fixed meals, washed dishes, and looked at catalogs. I'm from the Carey brothers' resonant ribbing and chuckles as they played cards in the trailer or fished for bass on Festo Lake. I'm from cousins near and far. One brother's head caught on a nail, the other's foot stabbed with a pitchfork, one sister's nose stuffed with flowers, the other's ears red with sunburn. I'm from Camp Grace every summer and a live tree every Christmas. I'm from a dog named Judy who bit the boy who chased my brother with a lawnmower and cats named Bobby Socks and Mittens and my other brother's bald mouse, and the turtle that was forever escaping his bowl to hide in a corner and dry his shell to leather, but never die. I'm from mountains to the west and endless prairies to the east. I'm from winds so strong it fought me all the way to school and blew me home six hours later. I'm from a small class in a small school, in a small town, in a square state. I'm from two brothers and two sisters, to mother when ours was too busy, from a forever working father and mountains of family ironing at a nickel apiece. I'm from an angry, depressed mother and an absent, hard-working father. I'm from a house so small I dreamed of a magical room above the ceiling or in the crawl space below where I could escape the chaos and be alone. I'm from my hiding place high in the rustling cottonwood tree that shaded the corner of our block. I'm from rolling in the grass and counting falling stars from watermelon seed spitting contests, sheet lightning, and golden nectar Kool-Aid. I'm from walking barefoot in the library and playing kick the bucket in the street until dark. I'm from sweet Mrs. Gertz's pump organ and her dirt cellar, a treasure-filled shed and feral cats, from sucking sour rhubarb stems and jumping on the spring-loaded wooden bed of the vote's rusted old truck in their nearby backyard. I'm from bicycle crashes and a bathtub full of cucumbers from backyard tetherball battles, teeter-totter bounces, scrap lumber playhouses, and hollyhock dolls. I'm from cattails sprayed painted gold and tea parties beneath lilac bushes in full bloom. I'm from a bleak Baptist basement brightened by Mrs. Henman's flannel graph stories. And do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? I'm from apple bobbing in that same basement, Sunday school, singspirations, 
memory verse contests, and Christmas plays. I'm from laundry frozen on the line, skating on Hitt's Pond, wearing baby blue ice skates with silver laces and gray fur trim, breaking through the ice and sharing fresh Wyoming breezes and cold peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with my three best friends. Where am I from? I'm from a wonderful Western heritage, a good family and a happy childhood, from parents who loved me and did the best with what they knew and what they had. I am from forever faithful siblings and a God whose love and care has never left me nor let me down. Where I'm from. I'm from the backyard apricot tree and from where I landed when the limbs snapped and let me down. I'm from the flexi like a sled with wheels, and the scar I have from not turning the corner correctly. I'm from, were you born in a barn? And do you think money grows on trees? I'm from biking the hometown hills many miles a day, and those paper routes that, that made me rise before the sun. I'm from the 72 stairs and the bullies at the bottom. I'm from best friends, piano lessons, and my brother's accordion. I'm from grated carrot-laced orange jello on lettuce and topped with mayo. I'm from missing dad who worked all day and attended night school for our good. I'm from rush cleaning the house, anticipating invited guests, and throwing just about everything into certain kitchen drawers. No wonder we could never find anything. I'm from home-cooked meals and Sunday dinner guests. I'm from the occasional treat to a Sunday buffet restaurant where I once saw Gloria Miller, a pretty elementary school classmate. I'm from being the last kid chosen to be on the, rec- on the recess ball teams. I'm from cross and crown Sunday school pins and making the family go to church even when we were vacationing. I'm from the top of the Jefferson School stairs, where the two neighborhood bullies, Paul and Paul, trapped me and my friends, Roger and Greg, And from hearing my dad say, why do you let them do that? Are they bigger than you? But also being afraid of my father. I'm from playing white eyes with my sister outside in the summer darkness. I'm from monthly roller skating with the church youth group and the swim party where Sonia was my girlfriend when we went and was David's when we came back. I'm from flannel graph and memory verses and from singing, Do you know, O Christian, you're a sermon in shoes? I'm from El Toro sailing lessons on Lake Merritt, where my sister capsized. I'm from biking around the lake and catching my older brother on the soft park lawn, making out with Bev. I'm from my second grade, where my teacher from Wales taught me how to pronounce my middle name. I'm from my first heartthrob. In third grade, Marcella, and the pencils I gave her anonymously and was too shy to say who did it. She never knew. I'm from salting snails by the creek, which was next to a little church. My sister and I stood on our tiptoes to look into the small window in the door so we could see people rolling in the aisles. They were too busy to notice. I'm from sending off my older college-bound siblings, my brother on the train, and my sister on the plane. I'm from Mr. Richardson's train driving around the neighborhood. I'm from 
the school store, where I spent my paper route money on every imaginable sugary, sweet, and or juicy thing except pomegranates. I'm from Apple Strudel, made by Roger's Aunt Winnie at the apple orchard where his Uncle Wynn worked. I'm from having my mouth washed with a bar of soap and from the fake rhinestone-studded belt that too often found its way to my bare backside. I'm from sassing my mother, and she came after me. But she slipped on the wet porch and went down. I was in more trouble when she saw me laughing. Enter Dad's aforementioned belt. I'm from my high school commencement, wondering what I'd do with my life, and saying goodbye to all my friends whom I thought I'd never forget but did. We've read some of Lisa Buffalo's devotionals on our podcast, but I don't believe we've read from her fiction books. So here's the first chapter of Prodigal Nights by Lisa Buffalo. Disfrussied. Maybe not a word, but that summed up her week. Disappointed, frustrated, and worried. Bethany Davis checked her speedometer and eased up on the accelerator. Getting a ticket wouldn't help. Three years ago, she swore she'd never come back for more than a quick visit. The phone call from her oldest brother changed everything. Dad was in the hospital, and only family made it worth facing Southburg, Virginia again. Bethany turned into the hospital parking lot and snatched the last available space. Leaning over her steering wheel, she scanned the visitor's lot. Good. No media vans or pesky reporters. Her father's executive-level involvement in the defense industry drew constant attention. The last thing she wanted to do was bring her dad additional stress. The coast clear, she stepped out of her car. Hot air stuck in her lungs. Thunderclouds hung low in the distance, threatening the May sky. She willed her feet forward. Part of her wanted to run to her dad's side. The other part wanted to run away. She probably shouldn't have promised to move back home for three weeks. But when her brother mentioned her parents wanted her home, she jumped at the opportunity for reconciliation. Quick trips during holidays at neutral resorts had never been enough to clear the tension hanging in the air since her divorce. She couldn't risk something happening to her dad without setting things straight. Straightening her shoulders, she hurried up... She hurried her step, her insides whimpered. But a good Davis didn't show emotion. Dad would be okay. He had to. Besides, nothing stopped him. Not being shot while serving in the military, not cancer, not even nosy newsmen. Plaza Hospital's lobby bustled with activity. Families huddled in groups. Two children squealed and giggled as they played chase with a pink congratulations balloon. A dark-haired man sat in the corner reading a newspaper. Antiseptic smells mingled with the scent of popcorn served from a vendor cart. Bethany hesitated at the gift shop entrance. Should she take something to her father? Flowers were out of the question. She'd learned that lesson when she was six. He had accepted her hand-picked flowers, chastised her for picking them, and then thrown them in the garbage. How could she have known the plant she'd chosen to wrap her bouquet in was poison ivy? She walked inside the small shop brimming with flowers and gifts and went straight for the cards. Most were mushy and sentimental. Others were funny. One with a sunset shot of the ocean caught her eye. Nothing too sappy, just a few simple statements wishing the person a speedy recovery. 
Oh, how she hoped he would recover. At the counter, a guy paid for a candy bar, then turned to face her. A smile lit his handsome face. Tall and muscular with a slender frame, he stood in her way, staring at her. Bethany met his gaze. Did she know him? Excuse me, can I pay for my card? Handsome guy blinked as though clearing his vision. Sorry. He still didn't move. She leaned to the right and made eye contact with the young man who stood at the cash register. How much for the card? The cashier tapped the guy on the shoulder. Dude, could you move so she can pay? Clueless, the handsome guy flinched and moved to the left, but his eyes never left her face. Not sure if she should elbow him or give him a big smile, Bethany stepped forward and paid for her purchase. When she finished, the guy was already walking away. Shame she couldn't get her past to vanish that easily. She stepped back into the lobby, sat in a chair, and pulled out the card. What should she write? A zillion things zinged through her head, and all of them made her feel like a lost little girl. Ugh, she was a grown woman. Okay, at 25, maybe a semi-grown woman who still wanted her daddy. She signed the card. I've missed you and love I've missed you and love you, Bethany. Only two weeks ago they had been together for her college graduation. Ellen and Charles Davis, Bethany's always perfectly coiffed, perfectly in charge, perfectly perfect parents, had congratulated her, taken her to dinner, and wished her the best. Quick hugs, quick release, not much discussed. Just like when Bethany left Southburg, the lies and gossip about her divorce were never discussed and unfortunately never addressed by her parents. No one stood up or fought for her, and she left her marriage in a cloud of false accusations. Bethany stood, walked to the elevator, and waited next to a man in green scrubs. The shiny stainless doors reflected his image. Good-looking with brown hair and a shadow of a goatee. Seemingly oblivious to her presence, he flipped through a patient's chart. The elevator doors opened and he followed her inside. Bethany pressed the seventh floor button. He punched the eighth and moved next to her, invading her space with his seductive cologne. Cute or not, Bethany took a step away from him. She had enough regrets. She exited the elevator into a small, empty waiting area. Craning her neck, she checked the area. Clear. She turned to the stairs and jogged down two flights, just like her overly cautious dad had taught her. Being careful back in her hometown came naturally. Shame she hadn't used more caution the last three years while away at college. Maybe now, back home for a few weeks, she could sort things through and get a clean start, repair any damage left in her wake with her family, and move on far away from the memories of Southburg. Two of her father's bodyguards nodded their recognition and opened the door of room 473. In the oversized private room, machines silently monitored her father's progress. Even asleep, Charles Davis looked in control. Military straight, he lay on his back, eyes closed. Her mother, wearing classic black pants and white silk shirt, rose to her feet. Normally, nothing about her mother would be out of place, not a hair, and definitely nothing ever wrinkled. Today, one side of her salt and pepper hair lay tight against her head. The rest was perfect as always. Her clothes hung loose and wrinkled. Mom seemed to waver, her eyes taking in every ounce of Bethany as though she, they hadn't seen one another in ages. Without a word, Elena rushed to Bethany and clung to her. I'm so glad you're here. Her mom's voice caught, obviously fighting for self-control. She took a step back. Tears rimming her eyes and bottom lip quivering, she motioned for Bethany to sit next to her by her dad's bed. He's been sleeping for the last hour. 
Dark circles framed her mom's eyes. She patted Bethany's hand and squeezed. The thought of losing her dad left a ten-pound brick lodged in her stomach. He'd always been the strong one, the planner who drove the family and his business to success. Did you get any rest last night? Bethany kept hold of her mother's soft grip, wishing she could transport back to childhood days when life was innocent and mom's touch could remove any hurt. As much as I could, her mother's responded with a weak smile as her tiny frame seemed to shrink under the weight of worry. A folded blanket sat on the reclining chair in the corner. Mom's designer purse drooped against the arm. However, no sign of her older brother. Her brother's frantic phone call had given her the willies. Chase never showed emotion, and yet he had broken down on the phone. She thought for sure Dad had died. Where's Chase? He went back this morning after we got the latest test results. He didn't stay? With a defense contract going through sanitariums, your father made him go back. When Chase said you had promised to stay for three months, her mom broke down, tears streaming down her face. Oh, Bethany, that is just the sweetest thing you have ever done. She dabbed her eyes with a tissue, her gentle expression, drinking in Bethany as though she had been gone forever. Your father and I are thrilled, and since... His test results show he only had a minor stroke. We should have plenty of time to spend together. Bethany choked, coughed, gasped for air. Three months? Bethany? The deep, slightly slurred voice came from the bed. Dad? His normally tanned face held a chalky pallor. Bethany tentatively took her father's big hand. For once, he didn't pull away. How are you feeling? The little girl and her wanted to curl up in his arms, hear him say everything would be fine, and that he loved her. But that wouldn't happen. Never had happened. Feelings were never shown, not in their military household. His gaze locked with hers, and moisture gathered in his dark eyes. He gripped her hand. I'm glad you're home. His voice rattled, his cough clearing his throat. This will be a good summer. She nodded, all the words trapped in her tight throat. He swallowed hard, emotions flickering across his face. Emotions she hadn't seen except at his mother's funeral. His jaw tightened. Releasing her her hand, he struggled to sit. Her mom rubbed his arm. Please don't push yourself. Too much going on with the company. Can't jeopardize the contract. Has there been anything in the news? Nothing in detail. Elena's rubbing turned to nervous padding. Only that you've been hospitalized. He swore and pointed at Bethany. Keep those news bloodhounds off my tail. If word gets out that I'm not fit to work, everything will be in jeopardy. He took a deep breath, turned his focus to her mother. Tell the doctors to run tests for a yearly physical. I don't want the word stroke mentioned by anyone, especially a reporter. Bethany stared at the linoleum floor. She'd horsewhip Chase. She'd offered three weeks, not three months. No way he misunderstood. He set her up probably so he wouldn't have to come back home and most definitely to torture her. He hated her, hated the minute she was born and did everything in his power to drive her crazy. She could see the headlines. Big Brother Finally Sends Little Sister Over the Edge of Sanity. She looked over at her mother who was studying her. Mom smiled, tender and sweet, and mouthed, I love you. Jason Ross paced in the lobby. Why couldn't he have said something intelligent instead of standing there like an idiot in a gift shop? What was he thinking? God would never reward or trust him with someone like her, not with his past wild years. He believed in God's grace and knew he was forgiven, 
But surely for someone that amazing, he'd have to do ten years' penance in some, in some obscure country, ministering to headhunters. He turned toward the emergency room to check out his co-worker, a human accident waiting to happen. Warren Carver's latest fiasco involved cutting through the power cord with hedge clippers. Thanks to a surge protector, he wasn't electrocuted. But from there, how on earth could someone with a genius IQ get mauled by a weed whacker? Anita, the white-haired nurse at the ER front desk, smiled at Jason. Doc just gave our lovable walking disaster a couple stitches on his face and arm. At least his singed hair looks better than last week, she pointed to the back. Except for the missing eyebrow, he looks just about normal, Jason chuckled to himself. Warren and hibachi grills were not a good combination. His guardian angel should get hazard pay. Jason walked through the two large doors to the treatment rooms. Warren sat cross-legged on the first bed on the right. Several leaves and a small twig clung to his dark hair. His shirt, stained with blood and grass, looked like something out of a laundry detergent commercial. He cocked his remaining eyebrow at Jason. Thanks for coming. I stopped by your house and cleaned up the mess on your front lawn. Your hedges look terminal. Want to explain what happened? Well... After the clippers died, I thought I'd improvise. I guess weed eaters are best left to lawn care, not shrubbery. I think you should pay someone to do your yard work. But I enjoy working outside. Warren rubbed his chin, smearing a streak of dirt still clinging to his stubble. I probably just need more powerful equipment. Jason choked back a laugh. Well, at least your attempts keep you and the medical staff in stitches. Thanks, Lisa. That's chapter one of Lisa Buffalo's Prodigal Nights. I've been reading from Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, and today I'm on chapter three, The Black Spot. About noon, I stopped at the captain's door with some cooling drinks and medicines. He was lying very much as we had left him, only a little higher, and he seemed both weak and excited. Jim, he said, you're the only one here that's worth anything, and you know I've always been good to you. Never a month but I've given you a silver fourpenny for yourself. Now you see, mate, I'm pretty low and deserted by all. And Jim, you'll bring me one nog and a rum now, won't you, matey? The doctor, I began, but he broke in cursing the doctor in a feeble voice, but heartily. Doctors is all swabs, he said. And that doctor there, why, what do he know about seafaring men? I've been in places hot as pitch and mates dropping round with yellowjack and the blessed land a heaving like the sea with earthquakes. What do the doctor know of lands like that? And I lived on rum, I tell you. It's been meat and drink, and man and wife to me. And if I'm not to have my rum now, I'm a poor old hunk on a lee shore. My blood'll be on you, Jim, and that doctor swab. And he ran on again for a while with curses. Look, Jim, how my fingers fidges, he continued in the pleading tone. I can't keep him still, not I. I haven't had a drop this blessed day. That doctor's a fool, I tell you. If I don't have a drain of rum, Jim, I'll have the horrors. I seen some on them already. 
I seen old Flint in the corner there behind you, as plain as print I seen him. And if I get the horrors, I'm a man that has lived rough, and I'll raise Cain. Your doctor hisself said one glass wouldn't hurt me. I'll give you a golden guinea for a noggin, Jim. He was growing more and more excited. And this alarmed me for my father, who was very low that day and needed quiet. Besides, I was reassured by the doctor's words, now quoted to me, and rather offended by the offer of a bribe. I want none of your money, said I, but what you owe my father. I'll get you one glass and no more. When I brought it to him, he seized it greedily and drank it out. Aye, aye, said he. That's some better, sure enough. And now, matey, did that doctor say how long I was to lie here in this old berth? A week at least, said I. Thunder, he cried. A week? I can't do that. They'd have the black spot on me by then. The lubbers is going about to get the wind of me this blessed moment. Lubbers as couldn't keep what they got and want to nail what is another's. Is that seemingly behavior now I want to know? But I'm a saving soul. I never wasted good money of mine, nor lost it neither, and I'll trick them again. I'm not afraid of uh, on them. I'll shake out another reef, matey, and daddle them again. As he was thus speaking, he had risen from the bed with great difficulty, holding to my shoulder shoulder with a grip that almost made me cry out and moving his legs like so much dead weight. His words, spirited as they were in meaning, contrasted sadly with the weakness of the voice in which they were uttered. He paused when he had got into a sitting position on the edge. That doctor's done me, he murmured. My ear is his singing. Lay me back. Before I could do much to help him, he had fallen back again to his former place, where he lay for a while silent. Jim, he said at length, you saw that seafaring man today? Black dog? I asked. Ah, black dog, says he. He's a bad un, but there's worse that put him on. Now, if I can't get away, no how. And they tip me the black spot. Mind you, it's my old sea chest thereafter. You get on a horse. You can, can't you? Well, then, you get on a horse and go to, well, yes, I will, to that eternal Dr. Swab and tell him to pipe all hands, magistrates and sitch, and he'll lay them aboard at the Admiral Benbow. All old Flint's crew, man and boy, all on them that's left. I was first mate, I was, old Flint's first mate. I'm the only one as knows the place. He gave it me at Savannah when he lay a dying, like as if I was to now, you see. But you won't peach unless they get the black spot on me, or unless you see that black dog again, or a seafaring man with one leg, Jim. Him above all. But what is the black spot, Captain? I asked. That's a summons, mate. I'll tell you if they get that. But you keep your weather eye open, Jim, and I'll share with you equals upon my honor. He wandered a little longer, his voice growing weaker. But soon after I had given him his medicine, which he took like a child with a remark, if ever a seaman wanted drugs, it's me. He fell at last into a heavy swoon-like sleep in which I left him.
What I should have done, had all gone well, I do not know. Probably I should have told the whole story to the doctor, for I was in mortal fear lest the captain should repent of his confessions and make an end of me. But as things fell out, my poor father died quite suddenly that evening, which put all other matters on one side. Our natural distress, the visits of the neighbors, the arranging of the funeral, and all the work of the inn to be carried on, in the meanwhile kept me so busy that I had scarcely time to think of the captain, far less to be afraid of him. He got downstairs next morning, to be sure, and had his meals as usual, though he ate little and had more, I am afraid, than his usual supply of rum, for he helped himself out of the bar, scowling and blowing through his nose, and no one dared to cross him. On the night before the funeral, he was as drunk as ever, and it was shocking in that house of mourning to hear him singing away at his ugly old sea song. But weak as he was, we were all in the fear of death for him, and the doctor was suddenly taken up with a case many miles away and was never near the house after my father's death. I have said the captain was weak, and indeed he seemed rather to grow weaker than regain his strength. He clambered up and down stairs and went from the parlor to the bar and back again, and sometimes put his nose out of doors to smell the sea, holding on to the walls as he went for support, and breathing hard and fast like a man on a steep mountain. He never particularly addressed me, and it is my belief that he had as good as forgotten his confidences. But his temper was more flighty and allowing for his bodily weakness, more violent than ever. He had an alarming way now when he was drunk of drawing his cutlass and laying it bare before him on the table. But with all that, he minded people less and seemed shut up in his own thoughts and rather wandering. Once, for instance, to our extreme wonder, he piped up to a kind of different air, a kind of country love song that he must have learned in his youth before he had begun to follow the sea. So things passed until the day after the funeral, and about three o'clock of a bitter, foggy, frosty afternoon, I was standing at the door for a moment, full of sad thoughts about my father, when I saw someone drawing slowly near along the road. He was plainly blind, for he tapped before him with a stick and wore a great green shade over his eyes and nose and he was hunched, as if with age or weakness, and wore a huge old tattered sea-cloak with a hood that made him appear positively deformed. I never saw in my life a more dreadful-looking figure. He stopped a little from the inn, and raising his voice in an odd sing-song, addressed the air in front of him. Will any kind friend inform a poor blind man who has lost the precious sight of his eyes and the gracious defense of his native country, England, and God bless King George, where or in what part of this country he may now be? You are at the Admiral Benbow, Black Hill Cove, my good man, said I. I hear a voice, said he, a young voice. Will you give me your hand, my kind young friend, and lead me in? I held out my hand, and the horrible, soft-spoken, eyeless creature gripped it in a moment like a vice. I was so much startled that I struggled to withdraw, but the blind man pulled me close to him with a single action of his arm. 
Now, boy, he said, take me in to the captain. Sir, said I, upon my word, I dare not. Oh, he sneered, that's it. Take me in straight or I'll break your arm. And he gave it as he spoke a wrench that made me cry out. Sir, said I, it is for yourself, I mean. The captain is not what he used to be. He sits with a drawn cutlass. Another gentleman. Come now, march, interrupted he. And I never heard a voice so cruel and cold and ugly as that blind man's. It cowed me more than the pain, and I began to obey him at once, walking straight in at the door and towards the parlor, where our sick old buccaneer was sitting, dazed with rum. The blind man clung close to me, holding me in one iron fist and leaning almost more of his weight on me than I could carry. Lead me straight up to him, and when I'm in view, cry out, Here's a friend for you, Bill. If you don't, I'll do this. And with that, he gave me a twitch that I thought would have made me faint. Between this and that, I was so utterly terrified of the blind beggar that I forgot my terror of the captain. And as I opened the parlor door, cried out the words he had ordered in a trembling voice. The poor captain raised his eyes and at one look the rum went out of him and left him staring sober. The expression of his face was not so much of terror as of mortal sickness. He made a movement to rise, but I do not believe he had enough force left in his body. Now, Bill, sit where you are, said the beggar. If I can't see, I can hear a finger stirring. Business is business. Hold out your left hand. Boy, Take his left hand by the wrist and bring it near to my right. We both obeyed him to the letter, and I saw him pass something from the hollow of the hand that held his stick into the palm of the captain's, which closed upon it instantly. And now that's done, said the blind man, and at the words he suddenly left hold of me, and with incredible accuracy and nimbleness, skipped out of the parlor and into the road where, as I still stood motionless, I could hear his stick go tap, tap, tapping into the distance. It was some time before either I or the captain seemed to gather our senses, but at length, at about the same moment, I realized I released his wrist, which I was still holding, and he drew in his hand and looked sharply into the palm. Ten o'clock, he cried, Six hours! We'll do them yet! And he sprang to his feet. Even as he did so, he reeled, put his hand to his throat, stood swaying for a moment, and then, with a peculiar sound, fell from his whole height face foremost to the floor. I ran to him at once, calling to my mother, but haste was all in vain. The captain had been struck dead by thundering apoplexy. It is a curious thing to understand, for I had certainly never liked the man, though of late I had begun to pity him, but as soon as I saw that he was dead, I burst into a flood of tears. It was the second death I had known, and the sorrow of the first was still fresh in my heart. We've been reading from Winds of Wyoming, my first novel, and we're... We've been in chapter nine for a couple weeks, and this will be the conclusion of chapter nine. Mike rode with Clint down to the road to wait for the deputy. 
When they got out of the truck, Clint dropped the tailgate and sat on it. Mike stood. Hands in his pockets, he stared at the herd. Remember when I told you I wanted to start selling some of the cows for breeding stock and others for meat, hides, skulls, horns? Clint nodded. And that we're offering guests an opportunity to shoot cows this summer for a price? Yeah. Mike kicked a pine cone. That was the plan, if he could stomach it. He'd hunted with his dad for years and shot his share of antelope, deer and elk, even a moose. But somehow, that was different than watching guests kill animals he'd tended. He looked up. To be honest, I hate to do it, but the hunts will be a big boost to the ranch's income and list of offerings, another enticement for tourists to choose the WP as their vacation destination. Shish, he sounded like a brochure. But increasing the income from the herd would prove to his mom and to himself that bison had been a wise investment of ranch money. And like some ranches, theirs broke even or made a small profit every year. Even so, buffalo hunts had the potential to create a nest egg for the lean years, maybe even his mom's retirement. You told me about the ad, Cliff said. Got any takers yet? Not yet, but what if whoever shot that cow turns to shoot another one, and another? And what if dozens of people decide to take us up on our offer? He exhaled. Maybe I'm getting the cart before the horse, but I'm wondering if we'll have a herd left by September. He groaned. Then there's hunting season. God only knows how many hunters might take pot shots at the bison. Hunkered over a beer in the Wild Bunch saloon, Jerry Ramsey sucked on a cigarette and gazed at the bear head mounted above the next booth. After he'd posted bail and retrieved his truck keys, he'd driven directly from Copperville to encampment. Even though he'd only been in Copperville four days, he couldn't stand the redneck town one minute longer. The sooner he got Nielsen back to civilization, the better. But his court date was seven weeks away, thanks to a judge who was supposedly recuperating from surgery. Probably brain surgery, if he was as stupid as the police chief. He clenched his jaw, bile rising in his throat at the memory of Rhodes' mockery after he told him his officers manhandled him in the bar. When the chief finally stopped laughing, he'd leaned forward, hands clasped on his desktop. Tell that to the judge, Ramsey. We've got witnesses who say you did all the damage to the bar and to yourself, including thumping your ugly mug on the corner of the table you broke after you assaulted the barmaid. Ramsey downed a long swig of beer. The redhead didn't see it that way. Maybe he should get a lawyer who'd ask her to be a defense witness. She'd be good, real good. The chief had told him to stick around. We like to keep our eyes on losers, including former correctional officers fired for misconduct. He then proceeded to open a desk drawer and pull out a forty-five pistol. Good thing you have a concealed carry permit for this piece. Otherwise, you'd be facing federal charges for crossing state lines with it. He handed the gun to Ramsey, but held tight when he tried to take it. One false move, and you'll never see this again. Get my drift? Ramsey slammed the mug onto the table and glared at the bear. Things weren't going the way he'd planned. The cops were on his case, and Nielsen could slip through his fingers if he wasn't careful. Maybe he'd give that Sharon or Taryn or whatever her name was a call. He tracked a lone car as it passed by the front window of the saloon. 
He wouldn't be in this mess if he hadn't taken Nielsen when he had the chance, if he had taken Nielsen when he had the chance. He should nab her now and drive to Mexico, where roads and his breed couldn't touch them. But he didn't want to be stuck in a foreign country with a bunch of funny-talking dimwits the rest of his life. Plus, he had to be careful with Nielsen. She had a nasty streak. Good thing he'd packed a couple vials of the psychiatric drugs they'd used at Patterson to control violent inmates. Could come in handy, he frowned. Unless the cops stole them, he touched a drop of beer that had splattered onto the table and licked the finger. He'd have to check the secret compartment he'd welded into the toolbox. Raising his empty bottle, he caught the attention of the bartender who was visiting with a barmaid behind the massive antique bar. The man motioned toward Ramsey, and the young woman walked over to his table. She wore denim shorts and a T-shirt with Wild Bunch Saloon printed above a black-and-white tintype of five men wearing bowler hats. She'd already told him the men were some of the most famous outlaws in the days when the West was still wild, members of Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch gang. Cassidy, sporting a mustache above a slight smirk, was pictured alone on the back. Ramsey wished he'd known him. Butch Cassidy was his kind of man. Can I get you another drink? Some hot wings? Through the smoke rising from his ashtray, he looked the barmaid up and down. Ignoring the look of distaste on her face, he dug money from his shirt pocket. Two more of the same. She swiveled and strode back to the bar. Ramsey gawked at her backside. I hate to see you go, baby, he muttered, but I love to watch you leave. He belched and tapped his cigarette ashes into the aluminum ashtray. Encampment had some cabins for rent. Should he stay there? Or should he get a room at the motel in Copperville? No matter how much he despised the hick town. Encampment was 25 winding miles, mountain miles from the Whispering Pines. Copperville was 18. Made sense to be close enough to keep an eye on Nielsen, even if he would have to drive to Encampment for a drink. He wasn't about to waste any more money at Bogey's Bar. He chewed at a hangnail. It was her fault he got arrested. She'd made his life difficult, again, and expensive, when things could have gone smoothly. But she would pay for the trouble she'd caused him. And no matter how much she groveled and begged, he wouldn't marry her and give her his name or a honeymoon in Yellowstone Park. They'd live together. That's all. Too bad, really. He took a long drag on the cigarette. He'd been look for- looking forward to shooting a wolf or a bear. Maybe even another stand-there-looking-stupid buffalo. That's it. We're out of here for this time. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.